Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. The Mary Tyler Moore Show remains one of the greatest sitcoms in television history, and it's a clear forerunner to the female-driven shows that we consider groundbreaking today, including Sex and the City, 30 Rock, and Girls. Today I'm going to be talking to Jennifer Armstrong, author of Mary and Lou and Rhoda and Ted, and all the brilliant minds who... Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. The Mary Tyler Moore Show remains one of the greatest sitcoms in television history, and it's a clear forerunner to the female-driven shows that we consider groundbreaking today, including Sex and the City, 30 Rock, and Girls. Today I'm going to be talking to Jennifer Armstrong, author of Mary and Lou and Rhoda and Ted, and all the brilliant minds who made the Mary Tyler Moore Show a classic. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm happy to be here. And I uh, wrote for Entertainment Weekly for about 10 years and mainly covered television and specifically a lot of sort of social issues, especially women in television and pop culture. So while I was doing that, uh, that sort of led me to get very interested in, you know, women in television, women in comedy, and the fact that many women working today, like Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Tina Fey, cited the Mary Tyler Moore show as one of their main inspirations, which, of course, makes sense, because that's the only show we had back in the 70s that was you know, starring a woman on her own that was also really high quality and funny and classic. So because of that, I got very interested in the show and sort of started looking into it. And that's what led to my book, uh, Mary and Lou and Rhoda and Ted. Um, As the name implies, Mary and Lou and Rhoda and Ted isn't the biography of just one person, but as the show and all of the people that were involved in the show. So what drew you to, what made you decide to not just focus on Mary Tyler Moore, for instance, or just on Ed Asner? Well, yeah, um, I mean, of course, you know, Mary's written a lot about herself, Mm -hmm. so that's a huge reason, you know. um, So she's kind of covered her own life, but what's really interesting about this show, I think, is, and probably a lot of shows, honestly, is not one person individually as much as the confluence of all of them coming together to make this thing. Like, that's what happened that was special, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and any one of them not being there could have made the difference between it being this classic show that we still look to for inspiration and just some, you know, just another show that nobody talks about anymore. And that's actually what ended up emerging really through my research, I think, was that I realized that this was about how all of these different people made all of these different decisions and had all of these different talents that kind of mushed together and made this thing. And I think it shows how difficult it is to get a really great television show because any one element missing could be the end of it. What sources were most helpful to you? Oh, um, well, of course the people themselves were, were the thing. And, um, Valerie Harper was incredibly helpful to me. Um, she's, you know, she was one of my role models period throughout my life because I actually watched the Mary Taylor Moore show as a little tiny girl which I'm always baffled by. I'm always like, I wonder what I saw in that. Even then, you know, I don't know what I, I I guess I really must have still been responding to 
this, you know, somehow I knew these were independent single women and that I wanted to be like them as opposed to like the moms and, um, you know, wives on television mm-hmm. who kind of play second fiddle. And, you know, I'd always looked up to Rhoda as a character. So the woman who played her, Valerie Harper, it was a huge thrill for me to get to meet her anyway. And she turns out to be like a million times cooler even in person than <laughs> she is on screen, which she was impossible. But um, she was, she really, she seemed to respond to the sort of feminist aspect of what I was doing. You know, the fact that I was really interested in these women as role models, but also as in the women behind the scenes who helped, you know, make them who they were. And so she really responded that she's always been a feminist and she really went out of her way to help me and, you know, call people and kind of vouch for me and make sure I got everything possible that I needed that she could help me with, you know? Um, So she was, I mean, and that was such a, like a, you know, not only is it great that she was helpful because that's, good um but also that she turned out to be as great as she seemed to me on screen is always it's it's always like you know a little bit you get nervous approaching people that you've always admired because you're like please don't ruin my (laughs) perception of you you know because that can be really disappointing um so she was really amazing and actually one of the inspirations for the book overall I mean besides like I said I was already interested in it but then I started doing some research, and um, the first couple people I talked to were Trina Silverman, who was one of the show's main writers, aside from the creators, and she was the first woman they hired, and she was, you know, the first woman to do all kinds of things in television, essentially, you know, she was, she was writing for sitcoms before there were very many at all women writing for sitcoms. Um, she, I think, was the first woman to win an Emmy by herself for comedy. Like, most other women before her had to have a male partner mm-hmm. just to get into the door, essentially. Um, but she did it by herself. Um, she was the first woman to be sort of, like, at the executive level of producers on a, on a sitcom Um, who wasn't, you know, one of the creators to begin with. Like, there were a lot of things she was sort of, like, the first or one of the first to do. Um, And I found her very easily online. Um, She has, she's she's very good at email and things like that. And she got in touch with me right away when I asked, and she was one of the first interviews I did. And that, she was the one that kind of solidified the idea for me, where I was, she had these amazing stories, both about um, sexism, which are sort of always, fascinating, those really, those sort of mad men likes, really early, you know, you can't believe people said this or did this type stories, mm-hmm. um, and about her just fabulous life in the 70s as a single woman who was, you know, writing for comedy and really on her own. Um, so I was like, and then she started telling me how the Mary Tyler Moore show was the first show to hire many women behind the scenes as opposed to, you know, a token one or two talks. Mm-hmm. Um, And the reason that they did that was that um, James L. Brooks and Alan Burns, who created the show, were very intense about realism, and they really wanted women 
to lend their perspective to this character who was a single woman. They were like, we're married guys. We don't know what it's like to be a single woman in the 70s. So they really sought out these women and they mentored them. And I think that's really amazing. You know, that's, it's really kind of touching all around to me, that story. That's like, to me, quintessentially what we need to be doing more of, like, still today, like how women can make it in places they haven't is that they need, unfortunately, you know, they need sympathetic men to help them out. They can't do it. Otherwise, they can't get, you know, it's hard to break into that boys club otherwise. And these guys really went out of their way to do that. And I thought that was really cool, too. So I talked to her and I talked to Alan very early in the process, kind of before I even sold the book. And that's when I was sussing it out. And they were just so amazing and inspirational. And Truva ends up being um, a huge character in the book. And, you know, the first whole chapter is basically about her. Um, so they were both really instrumental too, and they helped. Like just knowing them and also getting their recommendation helped me to get to all kinds of other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really because I'd watched the show for years, and I'd always seen the name Treva Silverman. So it was really exciting, <laughs> just in the very first chapter, to be like, "Oh, that's who that is. This is really significant." It was just really cool to have because you know the name, and to finally have a character and a history to go with it was just astonishing. Absolutely. I mean, I felt like I mean, you can probably tell this by the first chapter, but like. <laughs> To me, like, she's kind of, in a way, the real-life Mary Tyler Moore, or Mary Richards, I should mm-hmm. say. Um, you know, like, she is more like that character than Mary was in some ways, like her life, at least. And I, I thought, I guess she's she's more like the real-life Rhoda to a large extent, too. But um, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, it really was. Um, so how did the show begin? How did it get started, in, like, in the production of it? And how did Brooks and Burns begin yeah. to do it? Um, lots of fun things about the the beginning of the show, actually. Um, it began basically because CBS wanted to do a show with Mary Tyler Moore. I mean, that was the bottom line. Um, they, she had sort of fallen off the radar a little bit after the Dick Van Dyke show, um, which she was huge on. I mean, that was her big breakthrough. And she'd kind of had some missteps, tried to do Broadway, that didn't work out so well, et cetera. Um, so Dick Van Dyke invited her to be on this special variety show that he was doing, and she was amazing. I mean, it's actually really fun to watch. I watched it um, at the um, TV museum, and it, it was amazing. You know, they really, like, Dick Van Dyke really clearly wanted to help her out, and, like, spotlighted her quite a bit. And so everybody was all excited to see them together again and specifically to see Mary Tyler Moore again and remember why they loved her. And so CBS signed her right away and said, we want to do something with you. So they didn't have a concept or anything else. They just said, we want to do something. And it was kind of up to her where, how she was going to you know, proceed after that. And she asked her husband, who at the time was Grant Tinker, who was a big television executive, and um, he's a very, very smart guy. And he decided, basically, he was the one who kind of put it all together. He decided to hire these guys, Jim, uh, James L. Brooks, I should say, officially James L. Brooks, <laughs> and Alan Burns, who were making a show for the studio that, he was, that Grant was heading at the time. Um, they were working on a show called Room 222. It was the first show that had like I, I don't know if it's the first I always get nervous saying first one of the first shows to have um, a black lead character um, it was about this 
uh, African American history professor in high school. So it was, it was sort of this high school show plus this guy's life. Um, and it was really sort of known for its realism. Like it was funny and poignant and real, you know, and that's what they did. And Grant really liked that. So he asked them to create his wife's new show. And they really thought it would be a great idea because this is what they were known for, um, being kind of timely and real. They were like, we should do, we should have her be divorced because um, everyone's getting divorced now in 1969. Um, yay, sexual revolution. So um, so that's what they pitched to Marion Grant. Marion Grant loved it. So they had to go pitch it to the executives at CBS. And that sort of notoriously did not go so well. And um, they sort of, you know, Alan and Jim describe it as this incredibly harrowing experience. I'm sure they're being dramatic. Um, but, you know, it's like the, the executives just did, had no interest in having a divorced character. Um, it's a real lesson in why you don't see more, more progressive stuff on TV, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they pull out research at one point. This is sort of everyone's favorite part, you know, they, they pull out research at one point that says Americans won't watch television shows about divorced people, Jews, people with mustaches, and people from New York, um, which is hilarious on many levels. It makes you want to, like, make a TV show that's basically all of those things. Exactly. Um, it's, it's so amazing. Um, and so this just did not go well at all. Um, you know, at the time, it's important to remember, like, at the time, a divorce, a divorcee, that's what they said then, and it was, like, really, it was kind of a bad thing. You know, it was kind of, as as I believe one of the executives said to me at one point, um, it implied kind of a loose woman, mm-hmm. um, and he just did not want to have her reputation tarnished that way. Um so, you know, because I think, especially Mary Tyler Moore, it's like her whole deal is that she's sort of this sweet all-American girl. Um, so they were having none of that. And, you know, Jim and Alan were thinking about quitting altogether. And then they finally, because of the long plane ride back to L.A. from New York where they had had to pitch it, they had enough time to kind of calm down. And then they were like, you know, it's going to look really bad for Mary and Grant if we quit. So let's try to stick with it and try to figure out how we can do this and not hate ourselves for it. So the compromise they came up with was that she was going to be sort of leaving. I mean, some people say an engagement, but it's not even clear that it's an engagement. It's Mm -hmm. like a sort of promised future engagement. Um, She had been supporting this guy through med school and he had said they'd get married as soon as he was done he got done, he still didn't want to get married, but he still wanted to live together or something. Um, that's very vague, too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really interesting because then, like, what ends up happening is that because CBS said they didn't want divorce, they settled for her having lived in sin for several years and supported this dude. Um, but somehow it's so glossed over that they just went with it and it was okay. Um, so that's sort of how it happened, is that they wanted her to be divorced, but they settled for her just starting out on her own again after a long-term relationship. Uh, and that's sort of where the show starts. Mm-hmm. And from there, I mean, really, that's not even... I mean, that's a huge part of why the show is historic, 
is that she's sort of the first truly, we always say truly independent uh, female character on television because there was that girl before that with Marlo Thomas where she was single, but she was still kind of very, she didn't really have a job and she was very dependent on her dad and her boyfriend who were always around. Um, so this was really an independent woman and a lot of women looked up to her because of it. So that's huge. But I think the reason that the show becomes a classic is not so much that as everything that they created, you know, around her, the character that they created around her. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's sort of where they started out. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things about this is we always, you look at it, you look at the finished product now and think, oh my God, it was so clear from the beginning it was going to be magical. But there are things like the hard, the pitching, the hard pitching meeting, and then the fact that the actors all had really different working styles that, like, mm -hmm. how brutal were the first rehearsals? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's sort of one of, it, there's a couple of big sort of, you know, classic moments in the early history of the very Tyler Moore show. Um, and the first one is that terrible pitch mating, and the second one is the terrible first taping, um, which is really, like, that was rough. Um, they they had to do kind of like a practice taping, and the idea was partially that, honestly, this is, this is when you realize how, I think, weird and, you know, quirky and faithful the TV business can be because really the reason they had to do this taping is that there were some weird new cameras um, that they wanted to test, CBS wanted to test out, and they're like, well, this way you can sort of like do a dry run and test these cameras, but we can see how things are going with this show that like none of us are quite sure about yet, you know? Because mm -hmm. um, even after they made the compromise with, you know, backing off with the divorce idea, there still was a lot of doubt about the show among the CBS ranks because nobody really understood the kind of humor that they were going for. And there wasn't like big slapsticky moments. So they were confused and it was like this way they can sort of prove themselves to the executives and also test out these strange new cameras. But the cameras ended up being these giant bulky things. So when they brought the audience, the live audience in for the taping, um, they couldn't see very much over the cameras. So they had to watch most of it on the tiny monitors above them, which is not ideal, you know, mm -hmm. um, for audience reaction. That's not ideal. And it was also, there were all these strange environmental factors that played into it, too. It was, like, really, really hot that day, and the air conditioning broke. Um, there was a bomb threat on the lot earlier that day, so everyone was clearly still on edge. Um, you know, there was a lot of odd external things going on that were not helping them. And they were all still getting used to the roles, obviously, um, still struggling with parts of the show. And they started out, you know, in the first scene, which is where um, Mary comes to look at an apartment and Rhoda's sort of trying to steal it out from under her. Um, and there was just, like, no reaction to anything that was supposed to be funny in the scene. Everybody seemed to hate Rhoda because she came on really strong. Um, then there's the other famous scene when Mary goes to her job interview and she's interviewing with Lou Grant, who will be her future boss. And he's very, he comes on very strong. You know, he's asking her all of these really inappropriate questions like, is she married and what religion is she? Um, and it's a very funny scene, actually, when you watch it now and they do it right. Uh, but it's the one that ends with, you know, where he says, you've got spunk, and she kind of says yes, and he says, I hate spunk. Um, 
and that's really, really famous now. But he hadn't quite nailed that either. Um, the actor, Ed Eisner, who plays him, was still figuring out how to balance sort of the gruffness of it with the, not, you know, with not being too scary, essentially. He's a very dramatic actor. He's a good dramatic actor. And so they were always trying to get him to, like, tone it down a little so that it was funny instead of scary. Um, so these two characters, you know, there's very strong characters in this, and these two in particular, Rhoda and Lou, came on incredibly strong because that's what they do and that's what we love them for now. Mm-hmm. But at the time, when it was an audience who had never heard of these people, <laughs> you know, it really was a delicate balance and they didn't quite nail it on top of all of these other ancillary factors that were a problem. So, you know, it really did not go well. That Some of the audience walked out in the middle, like nobody was laughing when they were supposed to be. And it was basically acknowledged to be a disaster. And... You know, everybody gathered afterwards and was like, what are we going to do about this? And the producers were really, you know, they had no idea because they had thought they had written a really good thing. Um, Mary cried when she got home and Grant called them up and said, you need to fix this because I, you know, he's like, I didn't say it, but it was, you know, your wife is crying. You're like, you need to just figure something out. Um, So it it was a very high pressure situation. And... In the end, all they ended up doing at the um, suggestion of Marge Mullen, who was the script supervisor, they made one tiny change, which was that the little girl who plays Phyllis's daughter, so Phyllis is the neighbor who Mary kind of knows, and you know, this is her daughter who's in the scene, and she's about 12, uh, she ends up saying, gosh, I really, I really like... Aunt Rhoda. Um, something to, it's a better line than that. But basically she says she likes Rhoda. Um, that is the only change they ended up making. And the idea was that if the, if the little girl indicates, you know, a past history of having liked Rhoda, maybe that will soften people toward her a little bit. So whether or not that was the magic bullet or just the fact that they were in better shape for the, the real taping, um, that is the only line they changed and they end up nailing it for that. And if you watch that first pilot, I just think that's one of the best pilots I've seen. And there are a lot of bad, I mean, even good shows. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you go back, like if I, whenever I'm, I love 30 Rock and whenever I watch the 30 Rock pilot, I'm like, no, not quite there. And Tina Fey <laughs> said the same thing. So I feel fine saying that. Um, it, and Seinfeld is, is a similar situation where like, you know, if you go back and watch it, it's like, what is this? No one's acting right. Like, they're all not quite in their characters yet. This one is beautiful. Like, it's funny and also poignant at times. Like, I tear up a little bit sometimes. Um, and everybody, the characters are just all right there. And it's it's really amazing. And it's hard to imagine that, you know, this was something people didn't understand or didn't get at first. But if it's not quite right, it's not quite right. And they only, they just got lucky that they got it right by the time they had to tape it the second time for real. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the TV landscape of the time, how revolutionary was this show upon its debut? I mean, it's, this is this is always so interesting to me. It's one of my favorite things about what, writing about television in historical context because you really have to kind of, it's hard, right? It's hard. You have to put yourself back there and go like, what, you know, how is it possible that this was just mind-blowing at the time? But then once you start to think about what was going on in television at the time, it was mind-blowing because you have to remember, first of all, that this is actually even before All in the Family. Mm -hmm. 
which is the other big kind of massive, you know, player on the scene, if that doesn't come until a half a season after the Mary Tyler Moore show. Um, so we're talking about an environment when people were, it was, all sitcoms were still incredibly traditional. Like, they did not get any more edgy than, say, Bewitched or something like that. You know, people were still watching. It was like Beverly Hillbillies and Hee Haw and, you know, um, Andy Griffith's show. Like, that kind of thing. Just that very simple, straightforward, you know, wacky hijinks ensue type um, type comedy, you know, that really nothing had changed since I Love Lucy. I Love Lucy sets a pattern, which, I mean, it's great, but, like, that was all anyone had really done after that, mm-hmm. to a large extent. Uh, so it was all just sort of, like, traditional families, you know, traditional couples, that sort of thing, and just wacky hijinks. That was basically it. And this show did a number of things. So the first, the, the most obvious thing, as we've talked about, is the fact that it was a female main character, which, by the way, that in itself is unusual. Like, even on I Love Lucy, it's not really, I mean, it's largely focused on her, and it's hard to notice anything except her when she's on screen. But, you know, it still was Lucy and Desi. It is called, after all. Like, notice the agency in the title, even, Mm -hmm. like, I Love Lucy. That's him, you know? Mm -hmm. That's the dude. Um, And she's married. You know, this was clearly only about this one main character with the characters around her. And, you know, that's huge. And she clearly, there's there's lots of important little things about her character, like the fact that, you know, she wants to date, but she's not desperately running around trying to get a man. That was always, like, if you saw single ancillary characters before, that's what you saw. Single women were, like, kind of man-crazed all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, she wasn't. She was just, like, chilling out and, like, occasionally went on a date. And, in fact, the show goes on for seven years, and she never ends up with anyone for very long. So, you know, that was huge. And a working woman, so that's huge. And it's an office setting, which turns out to be, I don't know if they set up initially to do exactly this, but it it ends up being that it's largely dependent on her office setting and what goes on there and her sort of office family. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's really about her relationship with her boss, Lou Grant, um, the other people at the station, Ted and Murray. Um, you know, she's the only woman at, at that office. And sometimes that comes up and sometimes it doesn't. But, like, that idea of having an office setting as a, you know, for, for a comedy is completely new at that point. So if you look at things like The Office now, um, you know, that's a direct kind of descendant of this idea it was instead of having a family, it was an office family as the main, you know, focus of the show. Um, so there's that. And then there's also just the way, the, the sort of humor that they do. This is why the CBS executives were really flummoxed by the show when they saw the first few scripts. Is that it's not, like I said, it's not like wacky hijinks. Like Lucy would just like go work at the chocolate factory and crazy things would happen and then it would be over, you know. Um, this was really um, subtle and nuanced and character-based, right? So all of the humor, if you look at it, like every single thing that ever happens comes out of this combination of characters coming together in a specific circumstance. And, you know, there's also this serialized element as it goes on, right? Like you see, this is one of the first, if not the first show to do 
um, very, you know, ongoing storylines like Lou eventually gets divorced mm-hmm. and you sort of, the, the conventional thinking at the time was, well, clearly we'll have one episode where it looks like he's going to get divorced and then they won't and then we'll pretend like that never happened. Um, but instead, he really gets divorced and like his, we even see his wife, his ex-wife go on and get married to someone else. Right. Um, and it's really poignant and there's, t- there's a lot of times when you'll cry, like you cry as much as you laugh and that's something you see all the time now in current shows that's like very modern, you know, shows like the, I feel like I'm stuck on the office day, but like, <laughs> you know, like that's, that's another one of the very specific descendants that you don't always think about. You think about 30 Rock because it's about a single woman, mm-hmm. but you don't necessarily think about something like The Office. But almost every show now, um, almost every sitcom now will have its occasional poignant moments. Uh, and that's really an invention of Jim and Ellen on, on this show. And that's why CBS was like, we don't understand what you're doing. Why is like, this is not funny enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turned out to be great. And it ends up being like, it's like there's basically ends up being two schools of sitcom after the 70s, which are, you know, the Mary Tyler Moore show and all in the family. Right. Um, so you mentioned Treva Silverman earlier. Can you talk about some of the other writers and also the different paths that they wound up taking to get to working on the show? Yeah, absolutely. I think they're so fun. And I feel like almost like the female writers end up being like this one mega character in some way. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. like the female writers are like this whole subplot of, of the book throughout because that was my that was my real obsession here. I was really into them because I felt like these were stories you hadn't heard at all. Whereas yeah. we've heard, you know, we know who the famous people are and something about them. And I love them too. But um, it was really fun to find out about these women and tell their stories because they've never been told before. And so there was Trudy Silverman who, you know, came to the show. She had really fought her way through um, comedy fairly early. She had uh, worked for Carol Burnett on a, a failed Carol Burnett show before her big classic, awesome Carol Burnett show, um, and then uh, had had written for the Monkees, which I think is hilarious, and you know actually got a ton of attention because of it because she was a woman. There was a big story about her and Mademoiselle Maxine, so it was like all about what it's like to be a lady sitcom writer. Um, so she had some experience when she came to the show. She was the most experienced, I think, but of the women who came to the show. And there was one of the other very early ones, right after Treva, they hired Susan Silver, who, um, she she was sort of a go-getter, uh, really, really beautiful. She's still very beautiful, um, very beautiful, um, which is important only because she, she, you know, it was a part of her sort of personality in a sense, you know, she's kind of like a, like a bombshell personality, um, and, you know, she and she really wanted to be in Hollywood. Like, that was her thing. And she went there. She was from the Midwest. And her parents didn't want to let her go. And she went anyway. She started getting bit parts and stuff. And then um, ended up kind of fall. It's like it was sort of just she followed wherever things took her. And she um, ended up first doing, well, she was at a talk show briefly as an assistant. And then um, ended up in casting at the show Laughing. Um, and ended up the head of casting because her boss died, um, so she took over. And she was there, but she and she was starting to feel like she really wanted to write a little bit. She she felt like she could. She felt like she was as funny as the dudes, mainly all guys who were writing for Laughing. Um, she couldn't really break in there, but she ended up getting hooked up with 
um, this woman, another woman, who she was going to write with for a while. And so they wrote a few scripts together, um, one of which was for something called, like, Lancelot Link or something like that. And it was about a, it was about a spy, a monkey who was a spy. This was, like, a thing in the 60s where they would like, have the animal on screen and pretend like it was talking. Uh, it's very strange. Um, so that didn't go anywhere, luckily. Luckily, she didn't be like, could you imagine you getting stuck? Major career years. on that, yeah. Um, luckily, that didn't go anywhere. She still has the script. She showed it to me, but... Um, she, so that didn't go anywhere, but it was good practice. And then they wrote a couple of other scripts. They ended up getting um, getting a couple of them made, I believe. And um, then, you know, so she had a little bit of experience, and she one of the scripts she wrote was for Gary Marshall, um, who, you know, ends up eventually producing things like Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, and then lots of other things like Pretty Woman. Um, but at the time, he was kind of bopping around the same circles as um, Jim and Ellen, and he was actually a huge conduit of talent to them. Like, he sent people to them all the time, especially women. Um, he was very helpful to people, which I always, it's, I'm always touched by people who help others get to where, you know, where they are. Um, and when people would call him up for help, he always helped, and especially when he found young women, who wanted to do this, who often sent them to Jim and Ellen. So he sent her there, and um, she, you know, had to do a pitch meeting and everything, and sort of the big thing with her, she went in and she didn't really know, like she said, she always says, she just kind of figured it out. You know, she just kind of, like, learned on the fly. She would take a script and break it down and figure out the structure and then, you know, imitate that, essentially. That's how she learned how to write for TV. And so she kind of just was like, well, I'm just going to look for jokes this week and I'm going to tell some stories and we're going to see how it goes. Um, she like barely knew, you know, she'd been on maybe one pitch meeting before. So she went in by herself this time because her writing partner by this time was, I think, going off to like get married and have children. She eventually came back and was doing writing again, but um, not for the Mary Tyler Moore show. So Susan was on her own for the first time. And she went in and told a bunch of stories from her life, essentially. And, you know, she was a little, she wasn't sure. She was like, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I'm even doing this right. I don't know if these guys are going to like me. But she just sort of started telling stories, and they loved, like, almost every story she told that essentially was about being a woman. Um, you know, she would tell a story, like, the, the one that she got hired for first was she told a story about being a bridesmaid, at a wedding for this person that she didn't feel like she knew very well. Um, you know, the, the classic kind of thing where, like, you don't know someone as your, that thinks you're their best friend, and they call you up, and they're like, be in my wedding. And she was like, okay, that's weird, but all right. Um, and then, you know, terrible dresses, et cetera, et cetera. But, like, she, you know, she just thought it was great because she was telling stories from her life, and to them it was all hilarious and amazing material, and they thought she was a genius, and it's, it's just because they they didn't know what it was like to be a woman, and no one had ever asked before. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one of her first scripts. Is there's a there's a first season episode where Mary has to stand up for um, a wedding of this girl that I think she went to summer camp with or something, and she's kind of baffled by the whole thing. Um, you know, so that was I mean a huge part of it is just that they needed these women to tell these stories, and they ended up they had never been on television. These stories had never been on television before, so. Um, 
you know, it ends up feeling really fresh just because it hasn't been told. Yeah. And many of the other women were the same way. It was like some of them came from advertising and just, you know, stalked Jim and Alan essentially until um, they eventually let them write a script. Some of them came in many, many times and pitched them these stories until one of them stuck. Uh, you know, there was just, there were all these different ways, most of which did not involve um, having any previous experience in television. I mean, there was one woman who got to them because they had the same dentist. <laughs> and when she heard that that her dentist, she was like kind of telling her dentist what she wanted to do because she was in advertising, but she was writing funny advertising. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I really want to write for a show like the Mary Taylor show. And he was like, oh, Jim Brooks is, it also comes to me for dental work. Um, so she was like, please give him my stuff. And eventually kind of got her step with him through the dentist. Like basically the, he, the dentist gave her, gave Jim her stuff. And then Jim said, oh, well, I don't have time to read this, but you could, cause it was way into the show at this point. And he didn't have time for that. Um, but he was like, but you can come down and watch us work, which is kind of amazing. So yeah. she started ditching work all the time. Like, she had, like, many, many dental appointments all of a sudden, and she would go and sit and watch them and then, like, kind of bug Jim if she saw him. And then finally, you know, she kind of just wore him down, and he was like, okay, fine. And I think I think she's one of them where he read the script eventually and was like, okay, this is terrible, but you wrote great dialogue. Like, it's terrible structure, but great dialogue, so I'm going to give you a bunch of scripts to read so you can understand structure. Then come back to me. So there was. That's what I think is really amazing about right. these men is that you know, as much as they say I, I don't have time for this, it's like that's kind of really nice. There's <laughs> a lot of time to take for somebody who doesn't have time right. um, to say like, here's what you need to do to make yourself better, and then come back to me. Um, and you know, a lot of these women go on to do amazing things. You know, they all they've gone on to be. One was an executive at Comedy Central. Um, by the way, they're one of my favorite characters in the book is Pat Nardo, who starts out as their secretary. And, you know, they, she's, she ends up, she's writing their jokes down, and it got to the point where she wouldn't write their jokes down if she didn't think they were funny. So she kind of ended up being this arbiter of humor on the show. And then they were like, well, if you're, you know, you know so much about this, why don't you just write? And she eventually convinces her best friend from New York to, to come write with her. Um, and I think that's one of my favorite stories from, from this book as well. It's just like, and those women, you know, Pat went on to produce, to have her own production company. Gloria, who was her partner, went on to be an executive at Comedy Central. Like, they're, you know, these women went on to do amazing things. And they're all wonderful, incredible women. Like, I was, every time I would talk to another one, I would just be like, I can't, that was, like, it can't get more amazing than that. And then I'd talk to another one, and she'd be amazing too. Like, they're just, they're amazing women. The story of Joe Renone is also an amazing one because I think it kind of provides the fourth dimension. You've got the producers, the writers, the actors, and then he represents the fans. How did he yeah. come to your attention? Oh, I love that man. Um, <laughs> this is my favorite part of the book. Um, and by the way, a late edition. Ah. He was like right under the wire. Like the book was done and I found, I have been looking for Joe Renone for, I mean, um, not you know, I, not like spending every day all day, but still, um, that would have been crazy. But what happened was, lot like way early in the process, I went out to LA and interviewed most a lot of the people mm-hmm. that were in the book. Um, you know, the, the big famous people for the most part, um, and some of the writers and stuff like that. So um, Jim and Alan, I think both 
mentioned this guy to me. Um, you know, we were having normal conversations, and then suddenly they would be like, they were just telling a story, and they'd be like, oh, right, so there was this guy, I don't know, like, and they end up having to explain it a little bit. You know, they're like, there's this guy who used to write to us all the time, and he'd write a letter, like, every week and analyze the whole show, and it'd be, like, five pages long, and we thought this guy was crazy, but then we sort of started caring what he was saying because he, this was the only sort of detailed fan feedback because, you know, what you have to remember is this is before the internet, right? right. So um, I always say he's the original blogger <laughs> because this is what all bloggers do now, right? Like recappers are always like analyzing every bit of a show every week. But at the time, they didn't have this kind of feedback system. They would occasionally, you know, critics would write something about it, but they didn't have this detailed thing. So it got to the point where they kind of cared what they, you know, they, they couldn't help themselves. And they would, they would, they found themselves saying like, oh, I wonder what Joe Renoni is going to think about you know, this plot line that we're doing or whatever, they'd be like, oh, he's not going to like this. Um, and he would give every show a rating. It was this whole complex system he had. And, um, you know, and to the point where, like, they're they're passing around what he says. And, like, Jim asked somebody to send it to him once when he was somewhere else. Like, you know. Um, and they couldn't quite, whatever it was, what, I don't remember what they said, but whatever they said his name was, they got it a little bit wrong. Mm-hmm when they said it to me. Like, I don't think Jim even remembered it. And Alan, whatever he said, he got it close, but not quite. So to me, I'm always interested in, I love regular people, first of all. Like, that's such a weird thing to say, but I I do a lot of celebrity reporting. So like, whenever you can get a regular person into something, Mm -hmm. I love that because it does add a different dimension. They're coming at it from a totally different angle. And I love the idea of having a fan in the book. Um, but why, you know, what are you going to do? Have some random person who's right. a fan? Like, no, but this guy makes sense, right? He's like the Completely, ultimate super yeah. fan. Um, so, and there, the, the other really nice aspect of his story to me was that, so what ends up happening is he's writing and he's writing, um, and, you know, he's an intense guy. Like, I don't think that's going to, I don't think, you know, it's out of line for me to say. Like, he <laughs> does, of course, it. He, you know, it's the guy who's, Every day, every week, would watch the show. By the way, he's only 20 and living in Rhode Island with his parents at the time. Mm -hmm. And every week, he'd watch the show with his parents, go upstairs to the typewriter at his family office, and type out his five-page letter and send it off. And and he'd sort of figure it out from the credits where to send it. And he's doing it every week. And so he does this for, like, you know, a half a season. And he's starting to get to the point where, you know, it doesn't sound like much, but he's now written, like, 12 letters mm-hmm. and not heard anything and he's, he's getting depressed and it's his birthday so he's a little he's a little moody about it and so he mentions this in the letter um, that he you know it's his birthday and he's probably never going to hear from them a little bit passive aggressive um, you know that kind of thing and then he gets something back and it's from Mary's assistant Mamie Kirk who's a lovely woman as well um, and she it's you know, I guess Mimi finally had seen all the letters and was just like, we can't, we can't let this keep going on. <laughs> um, so he, she sent him a birthday card signed by the cast. And she even was, you know, she was very sweet and sent him a note and said, like, we've been getting your letters. Jim and Alan are very busy, but they would like to respond to you when the season is over. Um, but feel free to keep sending your letters. Um, who knows if that was the right idea or not. Uh, it turned out to be okay. Uh, and so he kept sending his letters, and eventually they really did write to him. Um, you know, not every week or anything, but mm-hmm. they did write to him and would occasionally have exchanges with him. They invite, well, kind of invited himself, but they said yes to their credit. 
um, he eventually, he said, you know, he writes to them and says, like, you know, my brother and I want to come out to L.A. Can we, can we visit the set? And they were sort of like, well, you know, like, you can't, we can't give you a lot of time, but we'll, we'll be happy to let you watch. But they end up, like, they, these people can't help themselves. They're so nice. <laughs> they end up kind of like, you know, booking him on tour. Like, they got him in to see all in the family taping. Like, they, you know, they do all this stuff for him. And they get him interviewed by the LA Times. Like, there's all this stuff going on. He goes to the tape. You know, he's there for the whole rehearsal. He gets to be a part of it. Like, he's, he's an extra in one of the rehearsals. They tried to get him onto the show as an extra, but they couldn't because of union rules. Um, so him and, his, him and his brother go. They take him out to lunch. It's, like, crazy. Um but I, what I love about this story is not only does it give the fan perspective, and Joe is a special, special guy. I love, I love that. You know, mm-hmm. like I love his little story. Um, and also, it shows though how wonderful and generous these people were right. as a cast. I mean, how great! Like they had no business, honestly. Like they had no business doing that, right? Like mm-hmm. they don't know who this guy is. They don't know if he's crazy. They, they don't know. And besides which, you just. People can't just write in and say they want to come to the show. Like, that's just not supposed to be done. But they were so nice and generous, and they couldn't even help themselves from, like, then rolling out the red carpet for this guy. Right. Um, and I just thought that was really touching. And when I, I finally figured out, so it was like a weird flip. I was fact-checking something, and I finally, um, you know, hit upon the right combination of words that it didn't matter that I was spelling his name wrong mm-hmm. when I was Googling. I found this thing buried in the, like, deep recesses of probably, you know, mid-90s internet um, that he had written online about his experience. And so I got the right name then, and it turned out he was listed. I sent him a letter because I found his his address and said, please call me, and he called me right away. Um, And he was like, I don't, you know, he did the very, like, I don't know why you'd want, like, I'm nobody. Why would you want me to be in such... Um, and I actually, that was how I ended up getting him to do it. I was like, look, it shows how wonderful these people are. Right. So he, I think he ends up adding this like really poignant kind of, you know, thread and he ends up going to the finale. Um, and I just thought like, this shows how a show can affect a person in a really deeply personal way. And, you know, of course we don't all get to go to the set of our favorite shows, but I think it, it sort of ends up being a metaphor for that, you know, mm-hmm. and how... You know, he ends up kind of making a couple decisions in his life. Like, he doesn't have a big glamorous life, but that's the point, you know. This ends up being the most exciting thing that happened to him. Um, Besides which, he remembered things in crazy detail in a way that the actors didn't because it was their normal life, whereas for him it was incredible. So he could remember, like, the order in which people were sitting around a circle or, you know, whatever. Like, what people were wearing because it was a big deal. Um, And it's, it's, I just think... I, I, he's also just like a very sweet man, and I, I love that I now am friends with him. He's, he's lovely, um, and he's actually going to do an event with me in New York um, at the 92nd Street Y, where we're going to talk about it. So, oh, cool. Um, I just, I, I, I was like, if I do anything, it's, if I do anything with this book, I want to make Joe Renoni famous. So. <laughs> awesome. Um, I know you have to go really soon, but before we conclude, I absolutely want to get this question in, because I think yeah. it hits to the idea of of how um, the show impacted him, but also how the show impacted the people who were in it. Um, can you yeah. talk a bit about Ed Asner's evolution as a feminist? Yes, that was another one of my favorite little tidbits. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like it's a hidden one, but it's not something people had highlighted before. Um, yeah, he he sort of openly acknowledges that, you know, he's a very gruff Midwestern dude. You know, he's such a guy's guy. 
Um, and he's still very gruff and fun to talk to because of that. Um, but he, you know, readily acknowledges that when he first got to the show, he was kind of like, eh, it's weird. He even talked about it on one of the DVD commentaries. Like, I was kind of like, mm, I don't know about this. There's women's names right in the script. I don't know about that. Um, and then over time, just through sheer, I mean, he wasn't, you know, openly, horribly sexist. You know, he just was kind of like all men, I think, at that time, you know, who didn't really know better. And through basically just exposure, I think, to these storylines, to women writing for him, and and also, by the way, to occasional um, debates with Mallory Harper <laughs> about issues like calling her Ms. instead of Mrs. and that sort of thing. Um, you know, I think through all of that, and probably just through the women's movement, um, being really big and educating people, he really changed throughout the show to the point where um, once the show was over, he got a spinoff, Lou Grant. Um, his agent, like, negotiated a special clause in there about, you know, making sure that there was equal employment as much as possible um, among the cast and crew for women and equal pay and all of that. Um, though he was all very dismissive about that when I asked him about it. He was like, oh, my agent's an operator. He probably just did that to make me look good. <laughs> um, and But then, like, he did, you know, he was active with now. Um, he, the National Organization for Women, he gave the anniversary address funds for now and talked about male feminists um, and the importance of them. So he really, I mean, he's one of these guys who continues to try to like, and he'll, you know, he'll try to undercut it if you ask him about him. He'll, he'll like start calling women dames or something just <laughs> to act like he's not really that much of a feminist. I don't, it's, it's a funny thing. Um, but he, you know, we all know he's very political and very into sort of equality for all. Um, whatever you think about his specific ideas, mm -hmm. it's like this is clearly in line with that. And he really, um, he really evolved, which I thought was such a lovely thing. You know, you that you could to the point where also I, one of my favorite things in the photo insert that we have is a note that he wrote to thank Susan Silver for the script she wrote that got him an Emmy. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that that was really lovely too. Like that's a big moment for him to to go from sort of saying, like, oh, I don't know about these chicks' names on my script, um, to seeing her as a person who wrote the script and got him an Emmy, and he thanked her by name. Um, I believe in the Emmy broadcast, too, I can't quite remember, but he definitely wrote her this personal note um, that she still had, and so we put it, we, we uh, copied it and put it in the insert, and I thought that that was really lovely. Yeah, that is. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today about Mary and Lou and Rhoda and Ted. Any idea what you'll be writing next? Um, I do, but it's not official yet. It will be about another classic television show. Ah, that's exciting. <laughs> yes. Um, I don't think I'm allowed to say it just yet. Okay, we're we get, very we get close, that a lot. So. <laughs> yes. Um, we're very, and you know how that is. Yes. You don't want to, like, mess up with your agent and publisher. But, yeah, I, I think I'll be staying with Simon & Schuster and writing about another classic television show. I've been talking today with Jennifer Armstrong about Mary and Lou and Rhoda and Ted. I'm Olay Neaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.